Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wisdom of Friends podcast. Thank Thank you for tuning in. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. This is a podcast where you get to learn more about your friends and community, their wisdom, their trials and tribulations, timeless insights and their secrets. Now, let's get into the show. Please welcome your host, Cal Aras. Hello, uh, folks. Uh, welcome to Season 4 of uh, Wisdom of Friends. I'm your host, Cal Ross. And I'm really excited to be introducing you to a good friend of mine, Kevin Stamper. Kevin recently won the third place in the World Championship of Public Speaking. When he's not speaking to Toastmasters, he's leading a new church near Tampa, Florida, called Restore Trinity He and his wife, Mary, have two children, Jane and Oliver, and Kevin says that dad gives him plenty of material for more speeches. Friends, this is a fascinating conversation uh, where Kevin talks about his journey from being a pastor to the world championship stage in Vancouver, Canada. And what does it take to write an impactful keynote speech? How to become appealing and effective by telling compelling stories that inspire and motivate. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. So without further ado, let's welcome the one and only Kevin Stamper. So good evening, Kevin. Uh, welcome to another season of uh, Wisdom of Friendship. I'm really excited that you took some time out of your busy schedule to be on this program. And let me start off with my first impressions of you. And I this was almost a few months ago when I heard you speak or actually saw you speak at the Toastmasters International Convention in Vancouver, where you were one of the top speakers uh, that competed in the finals, and you came third place uh, at this championship. And what was amazing about your speech, it was not just the fact that you won third place, but the fact that you had such a profound message in your speech. I mean, you really uh, referenced in your speech, if you recall, as we being communicators and not just speakers. And and what a compelling story you told us about your uh, daughter and the importance of finding your voice and speaking up. And I knew then that, you know, uh, you you know, you have a terrific message that uh, uh, that we should have our audience listen to. And so I'm so glad that you took the time to be on this uh, program. So welcome to the show. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Great. And uh, one of the ways, uh, Kevin, uh, we uh, start our show is by asking our guests a very simple but profound question, and that is, what is your favorite quote or philosophy that you live by, and how have you applied it to your life? Hmm. My favorite quote or philosophy that I live by. My favorite quote is honestly, I love when, when Yogi Berra, um, you know, who used to play for the Yankees, when he said that 90% of the game is mental, the other half is physical. And it just cracked me up, first of all, because he's terrible at math, apparently. But when we really take these things, we break these things down, how many things we put ourselves into that we couldn't even say, it, it takes all of us to do something really well, doesn't it? And so that Toastmasters thing, for instance, is one of those things where man, it doesn't add up to 100%. You know, the hours and the hours and the hours that you're putting into a seven-minute speech, 
you're putting in so much more than just 100%. You know, it feels like you're at 150, 180, 200% of everything you are being wrapped into something. And so it's, uh, it's almost comical that I think he was almost right about that terrible math that he did. And so that's one of my favorite quotes for that reason. Uh, but um, I think there's, uh, you know, there's plenty of philosophies that we could all quote or we could all say. Uh, one of the things for me as a pastor, there's obviously a lot of the Bible that I live by, a lot of things that I follow that Jesus said or Jesus wrote. And uh, so those are kind of the philosophies I, I personally live by on the day-to-day basis. No, that is so great. And I, I totally agree with the with that philosophy of, uh, you know, trying to compile your total life's experience in seven minutes or less with that speech. And it's not an easy thing to do. And I think that was part of the reason uh, why, like something like the TED Talks became so famous because you had all these PhDs and scientists and Nobel uh, Prize winners to, they had to compile the life's message in 18 minutes or less. And, uh, and I think it really challenges all of us to uh, really be, uh, more uh, precise with our messaging. Now, that brings up another question, Kevin. I'm really curious is, where did you grow up and how would you describe your childhood? I grew up, I, I was born in Daytona Beach, Florida, which I was born in the 80s and it was like the happening place to be. There was all the spring break in the 80s, all that stuff going on in Daytona Beach, Florida. And then my family made a very odd move and we moved from Daytona Beach, Florida to a place called Casper, Wyoming. And Casper, Wyoming is a town of maybe 50,000 people. There are literally more antelope than there are people in this area. Mm. And very small town, beautiful, right in the foot of the mountains. And we lived there for another seven years in Casper, Wyoming, which was a phenomenal place. If if you ever get to see the mountains, the Rocky Mountains, to, to see that prairie that's out there all the wildlife the buffalo the elk the moose it's a beautiful place to be but then we made another move and came back to florida and moved to south florida to palm beach county which is uh, a very wealthy very uh, very very different type of place very new and polished area and moved there and then after that my wife and i met in central florida in orlando area and we moved to virginia beach for a couple of years and then moved out to Seattle area for about six years. And we loved the Pacific North Northwest. It was beautiful, but ended up coming back to Florida in the last couple of years. So I kind of grew up all over the place. It was kind of a mess, you know, just being all over the place. But I love the different environments uh, that that created. I think that that gets to uh, excite different things within you. You know, there's part of you that starts to love this outdoor scene that you see in a place like Wyoming where you see these beautiful mountains. There's part of you that gets so excited to go to a place like Florida and see these beaches. So one of the things we would do is we would take students with us. We would take at different times, we would take groups of students from Florida, mostly kids that were Haitian or had immigrated in from other countries. And we would take them from Florida and take them out to Wyoming and show them just a place like Wyoming for them to experience that. And it was just these new eyes on a place like that, that they'd never seen anything like that before. It was really cool to be able to watch them uh, interact with a new environment and what that did for them for that short time. And then, you know, take them back to Florida to where they're, they're at home and comfortable. But uh, I've had, a, a, I've been fortunate to be able to live in so many different areas and experience so many different cultures. 
No, that is so great. And as you uh, know that I live in Seattle, so when I actually uh, saw your uh, address on Skype, it says Bellingham. And I was like, that's yes. so cool. I wonder if he still has any contacts in Bellingham. But no, that's Absolutely. great. Absolutely. Yes, I loved Bellingham. Oh, man, it's that area, it's just hard to beat, isn't it? You're out there on the in the Pacific Northwest, right out, out there with the San Juan Islands and the, the Pacific right there with the mountains not far. It is, it is a tough place to beat. You know, absolutely, absolutely, and 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 I agree with your point about travel. You know, it it adds so much tapestry to our life and adds color to our uh, the way it broadens our horizons and what it means to be a human being because you get exposed to not only different cultures and people but uh, you know the possibilities of uh, life itself. And I think uh, that's so great that he got an opportunity to travel so early in life. And uh, that brings up another question, and I know that you are a pastor, and uh, at the Trinity, uh, uh, it's called the Restored Trinity uh, Church in uh, Florida. Yeah. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I was reading uh, through uh, the mission and the vision of the site here, and it's so beautifully uh, written. And what I one of the things that really caught my attention is uh, about community. And you mentioned that, you know, we do live, we do life in community because we believe we are created for community. So my question to you is, uh, how did this journey began for you? Did you always know that you wanted to be a pastor or was there like uh, an awakening moment for you that you said, you know, this is what my life's meant to be? And the reason I ask is oftentimes we get questions from our audience you know, with how do I know what my calling is? How do I know what my passion is? And obviously, it seems like you have definitely found your calling. So tell us more about that. How did that journey unfold for you? Yeah, I did not want to be a pastor, um, no matter what it took. My dad was a pastor. My mom was a pastor. My brother's a pastor. It was like the family business. And I wanted nothing to do with it for a number of years. And so I went to college to become a business major. I was just doing simple business marketing stuff. And I enjoyed it. I really, really uh, enjoyed it actually a lot. Uh, it, it wasn't until accounting that I realized I was not good at business. Um, accounting just was not for me. But I was doing the business thing. And the whole time I was working with groups of students who were younger than me. I was doing uh, music at different churches, and I was I was very involved in that whole scene, but I was determined I'm not going to do ministry as a job. I'm not going to make that a profession. I'm just going to do these things on the side while I do this pursue this business degree. And so I was determined not to do it, and it wasn't until I met my wife, and uh, when we were first dating, she asked me, she said, have you ever thought about doing ministry? And I said, oh, I've thought about it, and I've been very clear with God. I'm not doing ministry. Not going to happen. And she said, well, that's good because I was, I've was i also told God that I will never marry a pastor. And so both of us obviously uh, showed God um, who was boss, and uh, <laughs> she ended up marrying a pastor, and I ended up becoming one. So we, uh, we started to kind of walk into that journey. And I think you're right. I think that a lot of people, we have a hard time with calling and understanding what we're called to do. I think no matter what we're doing, though, the reality is what happens is – Sometimes profession, sometimes vocation is not our full calling. I think we have other things we can do. Uh, When we look at Jesus, a lot of the people that he walked around with were professionals at other things. He had professionals that were doctors or even lawyers or people who would have been fishermen or, you know, people who were tax collectors, people who had all kinds of different professions. 
And he never really – it didn't seem like he was really worried about the profession they had because I think what he saw was that every job was a means to an end. And for each one of us, there's – sometimes we have a job that is the end game. It's the end of everything we can think of, right? We have this perfect profession. It's everything we dreamed it would be and it's the end game is this job. But sometimes we have professions that are simply means to a greater end. And I talk to people sometimes who are like, you know, I hate my job. All it is is a paycheck. There's probably it's like, yeah, but at least you got a paycheck. You know, the paycheck still does something. And what's the end game that that paycheck can go towards? Does that make sense? What are the things that you're pursuing outside of your workplace that that paycheck can help you with? So what if we stop seeing the job just as an end game, but as a means to an end of something greater than that? And so we even talk about that in our church all the time. I wish sometimes I wasn't a pastor. I could meet more people outside of my church if I wasn't a pastor, but I'm kind of stuck inside the confines of a church to some extent. There's people in my church who are all over the place. They're teachers, they're businessmen, they're doctors, they're nurses. They have the opportunity to go interact with more people than I do. But that's only that only happens if they see their job not as an end game, but as a means to something greater. And what's that greater calling that they're, they're fulfilling within their job? And so I think for each one of us, we have to fulfill something greater inside of us that sometimes profession won't be the only thing that fulfills us. Sometimes there's something greater than that that we have to look at and say, does this – I talked to one guy the other day and he told me – he said, I don't like my job. All it does is pay the bills. And I was like, yeah, you know what would happen if you didn't have that job though? You wouldn't pay the bills. And that's actually a pretty big deal. And what are those bills paying for? And he has three kids who are growing up and he has a phenomenal family and he gets to travel when he wants to and the job fulfills him in different ways that way. He has a flexible schedule. He gets to do different things. And I was going, this isn't all bad. Let's see this as a means to an end instead of an end game unto itself. And that'll change our perception. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. And I think you bring bring up a very important point. And uh, as you said, that oftentimes it's the journey uh, that really matters. And I think it's mm-hmm. uh, it reminds me of that story about uh, the three Masons. Uh, and, you know, the first Mason is trying to uh, build something and he's not really happy with what he's doing. And when asked what he's up to, he says, I'm hammering the stupid rock so I, could, I can't wait till it's five o'clock when I can go home. And the second mason mm-hmm. basically says, well, I know that I'm building this rock so that it can be useful for others to construct a wall. It's not a bad job, but I'll sure be, sure be glad when it's done. And then the third mason, when asked what he's doing, he says, I'm building a cathedral. And, you know, three men, three different attitudes, all doing the same job. And yeah. I think I think the point here really is, uh, you know, whatever you do, do it with dignity and the fact that you could find fulfillment with that paycheck elsewhere. And uh, and that that's such a beautiful point, and I totally agree with that. Uh, now, the next question that comes up, Kevin, is uh, where most of the folks we've had on this show, I mean, they've been uh, massively successful at whatever they've been doing. It doesn't matter what the profession is, but they have encountered uh, challenges in life. And but the beauty of that was they never used that challenges as a failure. Uh, you know, as an obstruction or as an obstacle that uh, stopped them from going after whatever they dreamt of. But in fact, they used it as a stepping stone, as a platform for bigger challenges. So my question to you is, 
were there any specific challenges that you faced in your life and uh, how did you overcome that and what lessons did you learn from it and that helped you navigate life going forward? Yeah, that's a that's a great point. I think, man, there is a big difference between a stumbling block and a stepping stone, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Some things come in life and, they, and we feel like they're stumbling blocks until we look at them differently and say, these are stepping stones. These are something we're going to use to push us forward. And I, when I was young, I was, um, I was nine years old when my, my dad passed away. So my dad got very sick and died when I was nine years old. And my, my mother really, you know, she decided she was going to not date. She never remarried. I mean, she decided she was going to stay single until I was out of high school. But for me, growing up without a father, you know, losing a father at that age is a pretty traumatic event. And it was horrible. I mean, it was it was a terrible time. There's a lot of strength that comes through that when you start to evaluate your life and you start to evaluate where you're at. So when you start to see the strength that you have to find to get through those times, it changes who you are. And I was actually just thinking about this the other day. There's a there's a. A, a word in the Bible, there's this moment where this guy named Joseph, if you've ever seen like Joseph, uh, you know, the technicolor coat mm. or Joseph, King of Dreams kind of thing. Joseph, that same Joseph in Genesis, he goes through these horrible things. Terrible things are happening. And his brothers sell him into slavery. His brothers actually put him in a pit and sell him into slavery. And right there we see a huge amount of disappointment because Joseph has been given dreams to be something great. And instead he finds himself in a pit. <laughs> And he's sold into slavery. And for each one of us, the moment that we start to see frustration is when our experience does not meet our expectations. When our expectations are way up high, when we have dreams that we're aspiring to, when those expectations are very high, but our experience doesn't get to those expectations, when it doesn't meet those expectations, that's when we get very disappointed, right? Happens in relationships. It happens in jobs. happens all the time in our families with our friends, when we expect one thing, we experience another, we get very disappointed. Mm. And that's what happens to Joseph. But at the end of his life, there's this moment where he talks to his, his brothers and he gets to see them again. And everything has kind of worked out the way that it was intended. Everything's come together. And he says to his brothers, he says, the things you intended for evil, God used for good. And the word there, this intended word in Hebrew, actually means almost like a weaving. It's a woven word. It actually means like if you were to sew something together and weave, like you said earlier, a tapestry together. It actually means that. The things that you wove together for bad, God wove together for good. And I think sometimes the things we look at, we want to discard. We want to discard the bad things that happen in our lives. We want to erase the past. Instead of learning to embrace the past and we try to erase it so many times instead of embracing it and saying, what can I learn from it and how can I grow from it? And so I I actually I may be giving I may be tipping my hand. I'm not sure. This is actually a speech that I've thought about for a little while. But my grandmother, when I was growing up, she used to have all these rugs on her floor in her house and they looked weird. They were plasticky. And they were crocheted into a big circle. And it was different colors of circles and concentric circles. So sometimes it would be like a blue outer circle and a red middle circle and a yellow center circle kind of moving in. And they were plasticky and crocheted very oddly. And it turns out my grandmother was crocheting 
plastic bags together. She was taking plastic bags from the grocery store when she would get them, and instead of throwing them away, she was weaving them together and making these rugs. Mm. And what most of us would have thrown away, what most of us would have discarded, she saw as something that could be woven together not for evil but for good. And she made something beautiful out of them. She made something that was functional out of them. She didn't erase them. She embraced them, right? And I think there's something to those challenges in our lives that we have to learn to do the same thing that really we see in Joseph's life in Genesis or the same things we see in our everyday lives of those expectations and experiences not lining up but saying let's not erase them. Let's embrace them. That is so beautiful. I think uh, two things that I'm hearing from your share here. One is – you know, uh, when we have these uh, expectations and uh, when those don't get met and that leads to disappointment. And I think uh, somebody once uh, beautifully said that when you can trade expectations for appreciation, life mm-hmm. becomes magnificent. And uh, the other point I'm seeing is uh, hearing you say is it's about embracing our imperfections because I think that's where the gold lies. And as you rightly stated, as uh, with your grandmother, she took something that was absolutely uh, trivial or something that was being discarded that she took that and found uh, something beautiful out of it. And that that's really, uh, I think, the secret to living a good life. And my, and I've been uh, re- looking at your blog, Kevin, and I, it seems like, uh, did you guys recently move uh, to a different location as part of uh, the growth that you were experiencing with your church community? Yeah, we moved. Um, it's been a few months now, but yeah, we moved to another location. Uh, we were outgrowing kind of the space we were in, and so yes, we did make a make a move. No, that is uh, that is great. And so my question to you is: uh, when you look back at your life up until now, and I'm sure you've had many successes, but was there like a moment, a breakthrough success moment for you? And what I mean by that is the turning point in your life where. Life was never the same again moment, you know, and when it was like that defining moment or that moment that totally it was like life before that moment and life after that moment. Was it like a breakthrough moment for you? You know, there's there's a lot of little ones, you know, there's all these pieces that you would put together. I don't know that I've had one specific moment, but there are so many pieces of of your life that you kind of look at and you just keep going if you look at the, tra- the trajectory, if you're l- really looking at like almost like a chart of it, you keep seeing these moments that are going, that one got better than the one before it. And that one got better than the one before it. And there was a moment in my life, I was working at a, at a church and I, it was in Bellingham, Washington, as, as you mentioned. And uh, I loved the church there. It was a great church. And uh, I had a very stable job in ministry. I, it was an, uh, a large church. I was very comfortable there doing what I was doing. And I really felt like God was kind of calling me out and saying, I think you're supposed to go to this little bit smaller place, try some new things that you've never done before. And I was only uh, 30 years old at the time. And I thought it, it was a terrifying move for me was to take a step down, to take a step back and to and part of the reason I needed to take a step back was I needed to be with my family more. And I really had a terrifying thought of what if I'm only 30 years old and my best days in my career are already over, right? I mean, it's scary to think I could be 30 and almost like already see the peak of my career happen. And, but we, we made the move. We made this decision and my wife and I and my two kids, we made the decision. This is what we were going to do with, with ourselves, with our family. 
And we made that call and it has gotten better and better and better and better even since then. And so there was a moment I would say that was my biggest uh, step out on faith moment possibly was right there. I've had a couple of those in my life that have felt very difficult step like those moments where you really have to step out on faith. And that was one of them. That was definitely one of them. And it really but it but it has paid off in a lot of ways. No, that is that is such an important point right there for and a good lesson to learn is it's like with the moments when we have to take that leap of faith. Those are those pivotal moments, if you will, that we can really alter or shape our destiny. And I think uh and it takes some courage uh to make that leap of faith and I think that's that's such a great thing that you share right there. Uh, taking a journey back to memory lane, uh, Kevin, uh, uh, who were your mentors growing up? Were there any uh, specific people that you want to give a shout out to that had a profound influence on you growing up? Oh, man. Yeah, there's a lot of mentors. My, my brother for me was a guy that uh, I still to this day look up to. And, and I mentioned it in some of the speeches with Toastmasters, but part of the reason I have to look up to him is just because he's way bigger than me. He's a big dude. And he, when I was, when I lost my dad at nine years old and when, when my, my life was kind of in a, in a rough spot, he's nine years older than me. And so he had kind of developed a little bit, you know, of a real life for himself. He was married. He had a child, you know, he was doing things uh, at a point where I was still in you know high school. And so for him, he took on not just the brother role for me, but he actually kind of took on some some of the quasi-father role for me. He was also a pastor at the church that I went to and really mentored me. Was a, He was a pastor. He was a, you know, a leader for me, uh, a mentor of mine. He was a coach for me in certain times. Again, more of a father figure as well as trying to play the bro- brother role. So for me, I don't know where I would be without him, to be honest. I really don't know. He really um, stepped up in a way that he didn't even – I don't know how he did it, but he stepped up in such an enormous way as a mentor of mine. And so he still is, um, honestly, the, you know, he was my best man at my wedding. He will always be you know, that guy for me who I've looked up to more than anybody else. And I've had professional mentors. I've had people outside of that. One of them's in Bellingham, Washington, uh, and his name is Bob Marvel, and he was a, a great you know, coach and mentor of mine um, as well. I keep up with a group of another guy named Dave Bushnell, who is in also in Bellingham, and some guys around the country who are mentors and and guys that I, I keep up with all the time. I think for all of us, that is one of the biggest gaps that we run into, is we miss the opportunity to have mentors. And I've never approached anybody and said, I would like you to be a mentor of mine, and them say no. I've never had anybody say no to being a mentor. But we all need them all the time. We need people who we can look up to, who are further down the road, have ideas that we don't have, they're thinking about things in a different way, and who genuinely care about us, who will take on that burden with us as we try to make ourselves better and get better at what we're doing. We, we desperately need it. I think each one of us is missing out on a huge opportunity if we don't reach out to find a mentor. And so I think for me, that's been a big thing in my life is just to constantly keep mentors around and in front of me. No, that's such a useful and very important message that you share here with our audience. And I think 
you know, the importance of wisdom, and that's part of the reason that we started this podcast is because uh, oftentimes a lot, of the, a lot of our folks in the community don't seek out mentors. And I think there is that unfair advantage, if you will, if anything like this exists today, is that having the wisdom of people who walk the path before us and having them share uh, mm-hmm. generously their experiences and their insights, and that can make such a big difference in our lives. So, no, that's so great. And now, now that you live in Florida, did you pick up any of the uh, typical uh, hobbies and interests like surfing, or is that? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I love surfing. I, I, I've always loved surfing, and I even tried it when I lived in Washington. It was a terrible idea. It was so cold, but I tried the wetsuit surfing and all that, and so I do love surfing. I don't golf as much as most of the people here do, but I you know, occasionally play golf. But yeah, no, I, I really, one of the things I enjoy is running a lot right now. And I am trying to, you know, some of the things you, when you're doing the Toastmasters in this world championship of public speaking, when you get into that mode, you're really just singularly focused on one thing, right? Like you just devote yourself into a seven minute speech and you're thinking through every angle of every word and just everything is weighed and measured and, and everything is in its place. And it's amazing how deep of a dive you can make into public speaking when you want to. And you can learn all these tips and tricks, all the things behind the scenes, all the pieces that nobody else would think of at that moment. And it's really fun to do that. And one of the things I realized about myself doing this with Toastmasters and doing that in the public speaking realm was how little I had done that in other areas. I really had never singularly focused myself on things as much as I probably should have. And so I actually called a friend of mine the other day who is a – one guy is an ultra marathoner. He just finished a 56-miler over in Africa. Wow. Another friend of mine is a – he does uh, half marathons but competitively. He's a, a phenomenal runner. And so I called these two guys that are friends of mine and I said, you know, I, I kind of want to figure out how to maybe devote myself into running to a place where I'm actually – serious about it, you know, trying to get a deeper dive into it and learn it the way that I had to do with public speaking, getting not just to the surface level of finishing the race or finishing the race, even at this time or, you know, these kinds of things, like I just want to run this many miles or at this pace, but how do I get deeper than that? How do I get better than that? And so I'm already starting to kind of think through that a little bit as to another endeavor that might be fun. I'm not going to say I'm going to be like a world champion runner, but it'd be fun to take that on as a real challenge for myself in the same way that I had to do with public speaking in a way. So that's kind of what I, what I do as a hobby right now. No, that's fantastic. And, uh, yeah, it's 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 important to be uh, you know looking at life in different dimensions and like look at, trying to excel at all the different areas of life because it adds up into uh, you know eventually into like a whole and holistic person that we are as a human being. Every area that we give our best, uh, it makes a difference in other mm-hmm. areas of life too. So that's so good that uh, you've taken that on for uh, uh, running as one of your uh, hobbies. Uh, the next question is, and uh, this is Kevin, uh, let's say, uh, hypothetically, you know, we had a time machine, if we could go back in time and talk to your young self, your, let's say, your 18 or 19 year old self, what advice would you give him? Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I think the biggest, the biggest advice I would say at that time is really something that you mentioned a little bit ago. I wish at that time 
I was absorbing as much wi- wisdom of the people around me at that moment in my life. I think that you know when you're about that 18, 19 year old self, right? You have everything figured out. You're 18 or 19, the, you know it all, right? And I wish I would have been a little more humble to be able to accept some of those that wisdom that was around me. What you were talking about a second ago is so important, and I, I learned it later on in life, but. When I was, I remember when we were having children, my, my wife informed me one day that we were going to start having children soon. She just decided, you know, it was time for us to think about having kids. And I was like, I guess we're, I'm on board with it. <laughs> and so we started, you know, uh, started to think about what would it be like to have children. And we started to meet with people. So what we, what we learned was, if we're going to have kids, how do we do this well? And so we started thinking about who are the people we know that have kids that we like like, how are they making kids that are good kids, that like their parents, that do well at school, that are well-balanced kids? Who's Who has those kids right now? And how do we get to know these people and know what they're doing to create kids that are good kids, you know, that we like? And so we actually went and sat down with some of these people and asked them, you know, what was it like when you were having kids? What did you do? What were the secrets? You know, what is the, the tricks of the trade here that made you such great parents and made your kids turn out the way they did? And a lot of them gave us advice and they gave us tips and they gave us all these things. But what we realized was, you know, what would be smarter is rather than us trying to take all this great information and instill it into our kids, what if we removed ourselves as the middlemen and we sometimes put our kids around these great other parents Mm. these other people we actually removed ourselves and said let's take our kids and try to get them around these people because these people are great parents and my kids will be better because they're around great people right it'll make my kids better because they're with them not just because i have all the information because they're going straight to the sources that's great we actually tried to remove ourselves a little bit from that and i wish i would have had that foresight to know that at when I was 18 or 19 to what we saw, you know, 10 years later and starting to learn that humility a really hard way, but still uh, getting to get ourselves out of the way to learn from the, the collective wisdom of our community. That's that's such a beautiful point, Kevin, you make there. I think, uh, you know, there was a study done by, I believe, the Ivy League school. I think it was Harvard or MIT, not sure. But I think uh, they talked about the impact the environment has on our performance. And uh, I mean, this goes back to the same point where, you know, having the kids surrounded by amazing parents uh, who are doing a great job already. I mean, the influence of osmosis can be tremendous. And I think that's such a great uh, way of looking at a challenge or a new opportunity, if you will. And uh, I think I commend you for thinking outside the box on this one. That's great. Really great. (laughs) Uh, Now, the other question that comes up is yeah. uh, the other question that comes up, Kevin, is uh, now that you've uh, you know have traveled quite a bit, uh, you've uh, you know experienced the ebb and flow of life, and uh, so now at this point in your life, what would you say is your definition of a successful life or a good life? Oh man, yeah, I think that you know success it it, it is one of the things that looks different for so many people. For me, the reality I've come to uh, at this stage in my life is success really looks like uh, what my success level is not measured in my eyes anymore. I'm not sure it's measured in anybody else's eyes. I'm not sure that 
anybody else looking at me saying I am successful or not successful is going to matter as much as what my children think about me. What they see as success is going to be what I will qualify as success. And if they see me as a father that they, you know, admire, if they think that I'm a success in their eyes, that's really what's going to quantify it for me that I'm a success. And so I think it looks different for different people. I, I do believe that some people, they're great at, you know, their jobs, they're great at their, uh, their trades, they're great at their networks, whatever they're doing. But for, for me, I've realized that, you know, with kids, it changes your perception really quickly. And I realized one day I was thinking about my, my kids and, and (laughs) I had this thought that I, I could take all of my awards or all of my achievements or all the things that I've done right or well, and I could stack them all up and make a pretty decent pile of things that I feel good about. But when my kids do anything, I mean the smallest things, when I go to their Christmas programs and hear them sing Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer or whatever, somehow my achievements pale in comparison to how proud I am of them. I'm not nearly as proud of my greatest achievements as much as I'm proud of their smallest achievements. Their smallest achievements make my greatest achievements look weak, make them look small. And so I really kind of gauge it through the eyes of my kids. If they think I'm a success, if they see me as somebody who they think is successful and somebody they'd want to be like, then I've, I've probably done my job. Uh, but otherwise, you know, I think that uh, the, the worldly success that we've kind of come to know, for me, uh, that, that race is kind of uh, out of my head a little bit at this point. No, it's, uh, that's really a very uh, important point right there for all of us to learn. It's it's a it's a learning moment for all of us right here because I think uh, the as you rightly said, the materialistic success is so fleeting, and it's 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 becoming somebody in the process. And mm-hmm. like you gave the example of your children uh, because they look up to you and and at the end of the day when they can say, you know, I've been, uh, you know, my dad's the greatest dad on the planet. I mean, that feeling is just uh, totally, I mean, nothing compares to that. So I totally, yeah. totally agree with what you're saying. Well, I think uh, we have to like always look around for people. I think that because the legacy we're going to leave is going to be something left with other people, right? They're the ones that are going to tell the stories about you. They're the ones that are going to talk about you when you're gone. They're the ones who are going to carry on any legacy you've got. And so I think each one of us, no matter where we are in our own careers or business or paths we're in, we need to first of all be investing in the next generation. So that's why we need to be mentored is so that we can become mentors, right? And we need to be investing in that next generation. They're the ones that are going to carry your legacy forward, whatever that looks like. And so some of us get short-sighted on that. I heard a, a very wise man one time say that those who devote themselves to themselves will have nothing to show but themselves. Mm. Someday all we're going to have to show for ourselves is ourselves. But those of us who don't devote ourselves to ourselves will have others to show for ourselves someday. And I think that that's the reality is someday if we're too focused on ourselves, that's going to be the end game. And we're going to realize that all I have to show for myself is myself instead of something greater after I'm gone or after, you know, after my career is at its end or whatever that looks like. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's it's all about service and uh, serving others. 
No, that's so great. And uh, we're going to switch gears uh, here, mm-hmm. Kevin. I'm going to move on to the next section of our podcast here. And uh, these are some of the questions we have received from the audience. And uh, so the first question that I have for you is, what, in your opinion, stops people from achieving their full potential besides oh, fear? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that there. Yeah, I think that not so fear is a good one. I think the biggest thing that we let get in our way and maybe fear is too uh, simple or maybe this ties too much into to fear. I see more people limited by their own insecurity, by their own being terrified of whatever it is. And. I think we're all scared to make leaps. I think we're all scared to make jumps a lot of times. I was I was thinking about just, you know, the other day how this all works, but when I was thinking about it, we we become fearful out of our own insecurity. We have these things in our heads. I think it's something like every day you have about 90% of your thoughts that you have every single day are negative thoughts. And they're negative about you more than anything. And we have 90% of the thoughts that are going through our head are negative towards ourselves. And I ran the math on it. I can't remember all the numbers right now. I think every day you have about 300,000 thoughts that are new. And those thoughts, about 90% of them are actually negative. And I, I think we limit ourselves in our own heads before anything even happens. We don't even have a reason to be down on ourselves or a reason to think we can't do these things beyond what's going on inside of our own heads. And so we tell ourselves these things, these lies, these things that are saying we're not good enough, we're not worthy enough, we're not able enough to do whatever the thing is, and it will limit us every single time. And for me, when we were going into even speech writing and and, uh, getting ready for a world championship competition, I had a friend who was a mentor of mine who has won the world speaking, uh, the world public speaking uh, championship a couple of times. He's a brilliant speaker. He's, he's all over the place. And he told me, he said, this part of the competition, about a month before you go and a month before you're going to get on that big stage, this month before is my most important coaching time for speakers. And he said, because my number one job is to go pick up speakers off the floor. And he's like, these are good speakers. Some of the top 100 speakers in the world is who he's coaching. And he said, but at this time in the game, they are so down on themselves. They are so discouraged that I have to go pick them up off the floor and say, no, you can do this. There's a reason you're one of the top 100 speakers in the world. You can do this. You just got to get it through your own head that you can do it. And he said that's his number one coaching thing when it comes to public speakers. And I think we all just get so down on ourselves. And again, the thoughts we're thinking, the people we surround ourselves with, all these things matter to determine whether we're going to achieve the thing we think we could achieve, the dream we have, or whether we're going to stay in the comfortable zone, right? There's a great spot in – it's between Uganda and Kenya. Have you ever seen this? There's a place called the Borderland. And on the border of Uganda and Kenya – There was a civil war years ago, and there was this middle ground on their border that after the civil war, nobody ever claimed it again. They never claimed this spot. And so on the border, there's about a 10-mile wide gap where nobody owns that land. Neither country claimed the land. And so to go from one country to the other, you have to leave – so say you leave Uganda, you would go through their customs, and then you'd have to go 10 miles through a borderland 
and get to the other side and then check into Kenya. And you'd go into Kenya. So there's 10 miles between. And you know what's crazy about that area is thousands of people live in this little borderland. Mm. And there's no law. There's no government. Nobody owns the borderland. And you would think, why would anybody live there? Why would anybody want to live in a place that's so unsafe, a place that nobody owns, a place nobody wants? Why would you want to live there? And the truth is it's not safe, but you know what it is? It's comfortable. These are people who have become comfortable in this borderland. This is their comfort zone. They're not going to leave it. And it takes work to get from leaving one place, going through the difficult 10 miles, and getting to another place and actually crossing that finish line. There is so much work involved in that, but most of us stop in the borderland because we get comfortable and we don't want to press on. And I think our comfort zones, our, our own negativities, those are the things that draw that draw us back from who we could be. And we never fully get to the place we were going because we get too comfortable. Wow. Wow. That's that's really uh, profound there, right there. It's uh, self-criticism and uh, self-doubt. I mean, those are like those pillars of negativity that can... Uh, banish our dreams for good. I mean, that's such a such an important point. Uh, now, I want to kind of like uh, the next thing I want to talk to you about is the speaking, the art of speaking here. And one of the things that we have all noticed within the Toastmasters community is what a gifted storyteller you are. And so, my question to you is: uh, Walk us through. Your preparation on a Sunday morning or when you're writing a speech or writing a sermon, what's your creative process like? How do you write your stories? And uh, give, us, give us an insight into your thought process when you write your sermon or write an effective speech. Yeah, the the storytelling, I think, is is so critical. I think that we all have to understand it, even if you're in a business, even if you're in a, you know, a nonprofit or, or whatever you're working in. These stories are gold. Stories are so much deeper than what bullet points can do. Uh, I tell people this all the time when I talk about storytelling, but, uh, you know, Shakespeare did not write Romeo and Juliet. Shakespeare was not the original author of Romeo and Juliet. It was actually a French play long before Shakespeare. And Shakespeare would only have about a week to turn out a new stage production. So if he was getting done with Hamlet, he would have one week until he had to create a brand new play that was ready to roll out for the entire community to come see. I mean, it's phenomenal that he was doing this with those kind of deadlines, right? And so Romeo and Juliet was a story that had been in the French world for a while. He took it and he did adapt it and he changed the ending and he was the one that created this tragic ending of the of these two children dying and all this stuff. But he, it really wasn't his story. Now, what was really going on in England at that time is pretty remarkable. What was happening was there was a split between the churches in England. There was the Protestant church and the Reformation movement and Martin Luther and all these things happening, which was a free-flowing version of love, a free-flowing relationship with Jesus. And, and you could just love Jesus. You didn't have to go through all the tenets of the church to be in right standing. But then there was still the, the traditional Church of England. You know, more of a Catholicism and a very ritualistic type of, of love of God. And you had to go through all the rituals and do all the right things. And Shakespeare saw this divide happening in his culture. 
he saw one group going one way and another group going another way. And he saw Romeo and Juliet and he saw an opportunity to make a play that would speak to people. And so what happens in Romeo and Juliet, if you notice, first of all, Romeo, he 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 falls in love. As friend Mercutio tells him, here's how you fall in love. And Mercutio gives him four steps of how you fall in love. First, you do this, then you do this, then you do this, then you do this, and then you're in love. And Romeo tries it, and he doesn't fall in love with the girl. But then later, he meets Juliet. And what happens when he meets Juliet is this free-flowing love that happens. It's actually the first time in the entire play where Romeo breaks from the iambic pentameter, he breaks from the the structured speaking, and he just speaks he speaks in free form. He completely speaks in free form, new words b- bursting out of his mouth, and he talks about how he's in love with Juliet. And there's other references to religious things. I mean, obviously, when she drinks the poison, she dies for three days and comes back to life, which is part of the Jesus story and, you know, all these things. There's other pieces to this. But what he's showing is Romeo tried to fall in love like this Church of England saying, follow all these steps and then you'll be in love with God. But instead, he fell in love in this free-flowing, free-form way of understanding what love was and fell in love with Juliet. And what Shakespeare is doing there is he's telling us the history of England through a story, right? Mm. We don't remember the bullet points. There are people who have written the history of England down in documents after documents after documents. And we don't remember their bullet points, but we remember a great story. And it's the reason that the first time that the Queen of England ever stood at a play was at Romeo and Juliet. She recognized what was going on. What was happening when he wrote this and why it was so important. And so for us, we get the chance to tell stories because people will remember the stories much more than the the bullet points. It's literally what Jesus did all the time. He told parables. Most people know the Good Samaritan story, right? Or they know the prodigal son. These are stories that Jesus told. And he would tell stories all the time because stories stick with people. So we all have to learn to harness a story. I think every one of us, we have to figure out how to tell great stories. For me, a lot of stories, what I do with stories, and this is maybe peeling back the curtain a little bit, I try to take uh, anything that I think is interesting. So if there's a story that happens, I will just pull out my phone and I will make a note on my phone of here's a story of something. Now, this may be useful someday. It may never be useful. I'm not really sure. Uh, But I want to document that story so that if there is a point where it comes up, I have it written down somewhere just to remember it. And what happens is the discipline becomes every week you just have to go through those notes, find all your little things that are interesting, all these little stories, all these little ideas, and start to see if any of them piece together with other stories. See if any of them are kind of able to bounce off of one another and they would become a bigger thought. And as you do that, you may come up with a speech, you may come up with something for your business, you may come up with a sales pitch that all kind of becomes interwoven as you see this thread going to this story, that that thread then goes to this story, and that story tells this point, and on and on and on. 
And everything we should do is really tell a story and make a point. Tell a story and make a point. And so I just keep extensive lists of stories on my phone of anything I think is interesting. And then my discipline is just each week I have to go through and just kind of knock through those and see if anything works anything goes with anything else and how those things start to fall together. And that's how I come up with essentially sermons or, or speeches. And that is, that is such a beautiful point. And I think the stories are the key to uh, becoming an effective speaker. I think you just highlighted with that beautiful example of the history of England and Shakespeare. What a beautiful analogy right there. Uh, the other question that comes up is, what is your uh, preparation like? And I want to kind of get into your journey. And we probably are running a little bit over time here, but I'll try to like capture as much as we can mm-hmm. in the next uh, few minutes. Is... Uh, what was your practice like when you were preparing for this world championship of public speaking? Uh, how often would you practice and how many tweaks did you have to do to your original speech and editing and that kind of stuff? Oh, man. Uh, yeah, the original speech that I won our district with turned out to be a completely different speech by the time I got to the world stage. And it's the difference between a good speech and a world-class speech. It really is. But what happened with that first speech, and it's the one that I won the semifinals with at the World Championship of Public Speaking, there were many tweaks I had to make. First of all, I opened up with a joke about Oklahoma in the original speech. And I said something about how Oklahoma is not that great. And I said literally the state motto of Oklahoma is Oklahoma. It's okay. It says it on every license plate. It's literally the state motto. And I realized it worked. It was a fine joke, but I'm speaking to an international crowd. There's going to be a lot of people there that have no idea where Oklahoma is or why it matters. Yeah, It's not going to be interesting to them. So I had to change significant parts of the speech with things like that that would then become attractive to more people. The other thing is even just the wording. I worked with one world champion who took my script and he took it all apart. And he took my script from about 1,100 words to about 600 words. And to be honest, I was furious. <laughs> I was like, I worked so hard on those words, you know. But he stripped things back. He found simpler ways to say things. And he told me, he said, I would not speak on greater than a fourth grade level if I were you. Mm. And he said, you're speaking to an international crowd and not everybody's going to understand all of these nuanced words that we're using in the English language. And so speak to your crowd. And, and that doesn't mean speak unintelligently. It just means find the right words. Finding the right words is more important than having a lot of words, right? And so less is more with that. And I had to learn to strip back a considerable amount of those things. So those were some of the biggest learning curves. Some of the other things, staging is super important. Just walking, just the the places you stand on that stage. As you tell a story, it matters so much where each character in the story is on the stage. And if you want to reference that character again you better reference that part of the stage again Mm. you need to constantly be playing through how is this story going down and how am i playing through all the venues of this story within my speech and so even your speech should in a small way move a little bit from your speakers the speakers right to their left because you're kind of telling a progressive story and if you were to read it how would you read the story you'd read it from left to right and in the audience if i move right to left that means that they're reading me left to right. right. I'm kind of wow. moving with them, right? Yeah. And yeah. so those are those are huge points. I don't think you can really overemphasize them enough. If you watch great stand-up comedians, they know exactly where they're going to be on the stage when they make this joke or that joke. 
And usually if they have a recurring joke through their set, they'll go back to the original place they were when they told the joke the first time. Because in your brain, it's triggering you remembering them having that joke at that part of the stage the first time. Yeah, callback humor and that kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. They go back, yeah. That's- yes, yes. And so they're just practiced and they're prepared. I remember we saw Seinfeld about a year ago. And I were watching Jerry Seinfeld, you know, live, and he's just the best, isn't he? He's just amazing. Mm. And watching this guy work a stage and how he was all over the place and knew exactly what he was doing. But there were moments that he knew his script so well. He knew his set so well that he would say joke one and you'd laugh a little bit. He'd say joke two and you'd laugh a little bit harder. He'd say joke three and you'd laugh a little bit harder. And by the time he said joke four, he would barely finish the sentence before he was turning around to grab water. Because he knew you were going to be laughing so hard for so long that he already had time to go get water while you were going to be laughing. Mastery. That well. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that is, that is masterful. Really, yes. It is. It is. That's great. Uh, now, any, any books that uh, you, recommend, you would like to recommend to our audience or anything that made a big difference for you when it comes to you speaking or just life in general? With speaking specifically, uh, there are a few books that I really loved about storytelling, about specifically stories and storytelling. One of them is called Save the Cat. You, you know, people who may be listening to this that are familiar with screenwriting would know Save the Cat. It's a book by a guy named uh, Blake Snyder. And Blake Snyder is a film writer. And he writes this idea that each character in a movie or in a story has to be the kind of character that would save the cat. We have to know if we would like this character. And so when you're writing a story, when you're writing uh, anything that you're, you're putting together, people have to like the character that you're talking about. And a lot of times, let's not kid ourselves, when we're speaking publicly or we're selling something for our businesses or our organizations, people aren't buying the product. They're buying you. And they have to know if they like you. And so he writes this great book about how to become a character that people like and how to have a character that people like. And in the book, in the Save the Cat book, he he references, for instance, there's a great moment in the movie Aladdin by Disney. Disney has this moment where they're trying to take a guy who is homeless. He steals food to get by and he's really a pretty shady character. His only friend is a monkey. This guy, we're supposed to like him. Why would we like a guy who's homeless and stealing food and his only friend's a monkey? Why would we like this guy? What they do is that first scene, they have him sing this song as he's stealing bread, and he sings this whole thing. And what happens as soon as the song ends, he sees these two kids rummaging through trash. And he takes his bread that he's just stolen, and he takes it over and gives it to these children who are rummaging through the trash. And he gives them food. Now we guy who's homeless and who steals bread, whose only friend is a monkey. Now we like him. And people like, even if that's ourselves. How do we make ourselves characters that people identify with and like? So Save the Cat's a great book. There's another book called A Million Miles in a Thousand Years by a guy named Donald Miller. Fantastic story book. Uh, just on the art of storytelling and what story is. And those are a couple of my favorites that I would recommend highly if you're into the art of story. That's great. And we'll include all this in our show notes uh, for the benefit of the audience. Uh, 
Um, is there anything else uh, that uh, any pro tips that you picked up along the way to your championship speech uh, that you would like to share besides storytelling and uh, practicing and anything else that comes to mind? You know, yeah, I don't think there's I mean, there's there's it's a deep dive. You could go a long ways with what these things are. But I think that uh, one of the most important things is to know what you are about as a speaker. One of the things that you'll fall into uh, if you're a speaker or if you're in any any profession is there are times where we know what we're supposed to do. We know what we're good at. We know how to give a, a certain delivery or we know the thing we're trying to say, the point we're trying to make. And we, we will listen to critics sometimes to a fault. Mm. And what happens is, is if we start taking all these negative things and we just start trying to appease person after person after person after person, we're going to take a speech that could be a really exciting one and could be a lot of flavor. It could be really, you know, really spicy or really salty or really whatever our style is. And we're going to make it vanilla. Mm. And it's not going to be what we wanted it to be. It's just not going to be who we're supposed to be. And I think sometimes we we listen too much to other people. I remember one of the first things that happened when I won our district was our uh, district chair came to me and she said to me, you're going to get a ton of feedback. Be careful who you listen to. Mm. And it's true. There are some people you need to listen to. There is, again, there is that wisdom of friends type of feeling that you need to surround yourself with people who know more than you and who you trust. But there's also a part where you got to be really careful and really discerning so that you don't lose the thing, the message you're trying to send. And there were a couple times where I really almost changed everything. And I think it would have been detrimental because I don't think I would have gotten to say the thing that was really what I was there to say, the important message that I really had. I would have watered it down and I would have lost what made it unique and what it made it special. Wow, that's that's really a great point. And it's it's about being true to yourself and not getting caught up in all the feedback that we get. Uh, that's, <laughs> no, that's really good. Uh, moving on to the next section and uh, we'll just kind of like uh, quickly go through this. It's the rapid fire round, Kevin. And I'm going to ask you a bunch of quick questions. And it's the first response that comes to your mind. And if you want to elaborate on it, feel free to do so. But again, this is the rapid fire round. So, Kevin, are you ready? Okay. I'll All give right. It a go. <laughs> so I so I understand. I was listening to one of your sermons online, and you are also a keyboard enthusiast as well as a pastor. So my question to you is: Who is your favorite music band? Oh man, I grew up with like just loving the Dave Matthews Band for years. I just thought they were awesome, and I still listen to them as much as I can. I just think they're fantastic musicians there's something unique about them that's just different than what you're hearing anywhere else so i always loved that stuff right now um one of my favorite artists is jack antonoff from bleachers and he produces a lot of other stuff he was part of fun i think he's writing some brilliant stuff um and there are a few there are a few other artists i think right now that are writing some really really cool things but i kind of cut my teeth in the dave matthews world so (laughs) that's great The next question is, if you could be successful in another profession, which would you choose? Oh, man. I would – oh, that's a great question. There are so many areas that I find so fascinating. Like I I love to hear other people's uh, takes on things. One of the things I would actually love to do though is uh, something in in a collegiate uh, type of world. I would really love to be a part of uh, the higher learning uh, studying 
academic stuff. I enjoy the study. I enjoy especially psychology and what goes on there. Anything like, like the Malcolm Gladwell type of writing, I love that stuff. And I would love to be a part of the academic side of that to research and figure things out as well as to teach the next generation and teach people who are up and comers in different areas. And so I, I think that would be a really energizing scene to be a part of is something within the university scene. That's great. Yeah, that's awesome. And the next question is, if you could have witnessed one event in history, what would that be? Oh, wow. One event in history. Man, that's a great point. Would you not have, I mean, just be honest with me. Would you not have just loved to have been in the audience to hear Martin Luther King Jr. say, I have a dream. Would you not? I mean, I would just have loved. That's a beautiful, to, yeah, that's a beautiful moment right there. To yeah. see that moment. I, I was reading the other day that actually that was not the speech he had prepared that day. He had a very different speech, and it was vanilla. It was exactly what we just talked about. It was a boring speech with a lot of policy in it. And he had had to water it down so that he could say a bunch of bullet points. And he was going through this speech, and it was not going very well. And a guy behind him, a good friend of him, his, uh, he leaned over and he said, hey, hey, he goes, hey, Martin, tell him about the dream, man. Tell him about the dream. Mm. And he put his notes away, and he stood up and he said, I have a dream. And he went this war, this utopia. We're still trying our way to too and i just i thought it was to see it happen in person yeah absolutely that's great uh and one final question within the rapid fire round and this is well i got two more it's actually if you could ask god one question what would that be <laughs> <laughs> oh man i got so many questions uh i would love oh man i have a lot of questions for god i think you know one of the things that that I think we all want to know is we have a lot of why questions of, you know, why does God do this or why are things this way? Um, and I think there's so many moments with that that we will probably never, you know, get a fulfilling answer to, but uh, until we, you know, actually meet him. But man, I would just love to know some of the ridiculous things. Wouldn't you like, I would love to know, like, seriously, why mosquitoes? Why do we have mosquitoes? What's the point of mosquitoes? Like, why did you have to make these things? They seem pretty useless to me. How do we get rid of mosquitoes? Things like that. I know I know it's petty, but it's things like that that I'm like, why would you even make those? Those just seem like a nuisance. So I think I'd ask him about mosquitoes, I guess, more than anything. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's a good point. And uh, moving on to our final section, and I just have last three questions for you, and this is the wrap-up section. So my first question to you is, uh, what is your current or personal or business passion project that you're working on, Kevin? And what are you looking forward to in the next six months to a year? Mm. Yeah, so we planted a brand new church. We started a brand new church in, in the Tampa area. It's in an area called Trinity, Florida. And we started that. And that's, I mean, that's my passion. Honestly, you know, to, to win the world champion of championship of public speaking to do those kind of things are great it would not have changed my day-to-day -day a whole lot because really what i'm doing right now is what i love i'm i'm absolutely in the middle of of the thing that i'm most passionate about and so we planted this new church it's it's a very new thing but one of the things we're trying to work out and figure out in our community and in our local area is how to create a a coffee shop actually like a cafe and the reason being is we actually think there's something really powerful about a place where there can be an intersection between the church and culture. 
I think sometimes the church and culture feel like two separate places. They feel like they're disconnected from one another. But if you look at the traditional church, if you look at the church even 300 years ago, uh, 200 years ago even, if you look at the church then, culture was coming out of the church. The church was the center of culture. Who was commissioning Michelangelo to make paintings? Who was commissioning Beethoven to write music? It was the church. The church was the center of culture. And so we've been trying to figure out how can we create a coffee shop or like a cafe in the middle of our city that would do good things for our city. It would do good things for people around the world who are growing coffee and we can give them not just fair trade but direct trade pricing for them. And it would be something that we could have a place where local musicians can come have open mic nights, where you can have artists fill up the walls with their paintings and sell it, where you create a community feel where 5Ks are happening from your local place and weddings are happening in the back of it. Whatever those things are, how can we create a place like that that we would have inside of our city where the church and culture could intersect on a daily and weekly basis? And so that's one of the big passion projects we're in the middle of right now as, as a church. No, that's so great. And uh, and then, uh, how? What's the best way for people to uh, find out more about uh, you? Are you on social media? Is there like the website? Is that the best way that people can find out more? Yes, um, I am on social media. I'm on LinkedIn and Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, all that stuff. And my name is just it's just Kevin Stamper. So if you go to, for instance, Facebook.com backslash Kevin Stamper, that's me. Uh, again, Instagram or Twitter, the same. But you can also find us at Restore Trinity, R-E-S-T-O-R-E-T-R-I-N-I-T-Y.com. All one word, RestoreTrinity.com. Any addresses on there. And I'd be happy to help if there's things I can help with in, in your business or nonprofit or even in your own personal journey if there are things that I can be a part of. No, that's great. And we'll include all of that in our show notes uh, for the benefit of the audience. The next question is, uh, what are three things, Kevin, you're grateful for in life today? Oh, I think <laughs> I do this on a daily basis. I there was a time where I, I run. I was I was in a bad spot. I mean, I just was in a in a burnout mode. I think we've all been there. And I realized one of the things that they say that that you can do to change your mentality if you're in a place where you're burnout to increase your happiness level. If you write down three things every single day that you're grateful for, because the day might not be a good day, but that doesn't mean there aren't good things within it. And so every single day I write down three things that I'm grateful for, three things that you train your mind to find the good within even the bad. And so uh, today, you know, I am grateful. Honestly, I, I'll just tell you what I'm grateful for right now today because I'm going to have to write these down later. But my children, um, uh, we just had – we've had a really special day together. Our church had its first set of baptisms today, and that's a huge thing for us. And so that was really, really exciting. And this week, our church had its first wedding that happened within our church. And so I am just uh, grateful for those things. I'm grateful that we get to see those things happen and that things are going well there. Uh, but I could – every day I write down three things that I am personally grateful for to keep that practice alive. No, that's beautiful. And congratulations on all those uh, amazing milestones. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, and I want to acknowledge you uh, before we wrap it up here, uh, Kevin, for one, for being so generous with your time and sharing your wisdom with our community about the art of storytelling and the art of public speaking. And 
And most importantly, what I'm hearing is your amazing passion for making a difference in the community through your calling as a pastor and then really doing it in a way that is so unique and so refreshing. Like mm-hmm. it's about bringing the church and the culture together in a way mm-hmm. that uh, takes uh, lessons from history, from the Renaissance period, as you said, of, uh, mm-hmm. you know, how the Mozarts and uh, the Da Vinci's and the Michelangelo's were inspired to, uh, uh, you know, create art and culture. And I think uh, you're really being an example of that, creating that sacred space for uh, for the community to be part of. And uh, really, again, uh, it's so inspiring just talking to you and hearing your stories. And uh, I know this was going to be an awesome uh, uh, podcast uh, conversation with you. And and this has really been great. Uh, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you would like to share with our audience? Oh, no, I'm, I'm sure I've taken up more than enough time. But again, I'm happy to help anybody on their journey if I can. And uh, help anybody, any companies or, again, nonprofits or churches if I can as well. Great. And then uh, one final question, and this is how we wrap up all our interviews, Kevin, and that is, why do you think people should listen to Wisdom of Friends? <laughs> it's what we talked about earlier. I think that we all learn from one another. There's a collective wisdom to that. C.S. Lewis wrote in a book called The Four Loves. Um, if you're familiar with C.S. Lewis at all, you know, he wrote Chronicles of Narnia, Narnia yeah. and you know he, he wrote a lot of fiction as well as nonfiction, but he was in a group of writers, and in his group of writers, he, one of the other guys was J.R. Tolkien, right, who wrote Lord of the Rings, and these guys were very good friends. They had a club called the Inklings, and they would get together outside of Oxford University, and they would meet, and C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves, he says that one of their friends, uh, Charles Williams, died unexpectedly. And they didn't know what to do, and they felt really they, – they felt like they had a huge loss in their community of these guys that would get together. And he said, you would think that I have other friends, and now they would fill the gap that I've, I lost by losing Charles, right? You would think that I would now have uh, more of J.R. Tolkien. He would be a better friend, and he would fill in the gaps. But he said, I can't fully understand how that would be true. He said, because the person that I lost is still the person that I lost. And so he said, that person brought out the best in J.R. Tolkien sometimes. Or sometimes I brought out the best in J.R. Tolkien. And sometimes J.R. Tolkien would interact differently with Charles Williams than I would interact differently with Charles Williams. And he said, we would see the fullness of one another because of each individual within the community, right? So we see the fullness of of all of us, we see the greatness of all of us better when we're all in community with one another, when we're learning from one another. And I think that's where we develop our best ideas. I think it's where the best inspiration comes from is when we're in great community with one another, with great knowledgeable people around us teaching and learning from each other. And so I, I hope that, and I think that's why people should listen to this. I hope that people listen to this simply for that reason, is that we all can get better by being together. Thank you so much. That was awesome. And again, I truly, truly appreciated our conversation here. And uh, with that, uh, we'll wrap it up. And for those of us who are listening, if you like what you heard, please share and don't be shy. 
Thanks for listening to the Wisdom of Friends show with Cal Aras. If you like what you just heard, we hope you'll pass along our web address, theglobalcontribution.com. To your friends and colleagues, be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous episodes. This has been a Seven Symphonies production. Join us next time for another edition of the Wisdom of Friends.